Welcome to the Ask a Club Fitter podcast. Answering your questions on all things golf equipment and club fitting. Here's your host, hoping to help you play better golf. He's a PGA professional, founder of Tour Fit Golf, and has worked with some of the world's best players. Tom Davies. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. If this is your first time listening, welcome on board. Like I always say, there's plenty of content uh, which I've recorded on a bunch of other episodes. So if this is your first time, don't be afraid to go back, have a listen and uh, and get stuck in with, with some questions and, and help me create some content. It's been a little while since my last podcast. Uh, I've had a, a bit of time off. I've been super, super busy building, fitting and doing everything else which um, which is involved in uh, in running a business. And um, yeah, I've been looking forward to doing this podcast. So I'm going to kind of get, get straight into uh, some of the topics that I want to talk about. Uh, but just before I do that, uh, I, w- I would like to thank everybody who has uh, entered the uh, competition for a free SM9 Vokey Wedge, where you can win your choice of loft, grind, bounce, shaft, grip, and also any uh, personalization that you want on the wedge. So we can do some uh, some pretty cool uh, engraving of, uh, I don't know, any f- photos, text, your name, daughter's name, son's name, whatever it is, uh, we can we can pretty much do it. So uh, a big thank you to everyone who's entered that competition. Uh, we had quite a good response to it. So I'm looking forward to, to drawing that uh, and I'm going to draw that on uh, next week's episode. I'm going to do that live on the episode so um, stay tuned for that and if you haven't already entered head over to my Instagram which is torfitgolf 59 and uh, you'll see the link for the competition uh, in my bio. So into uh, this week's content. So I've been very lucky over the last kind of month to um, get I wouldn't say given, um, but I was sent a shaft uh, by the guys at uh, Autoflex. Um, just to test out, I've been inquiring whether or not to get these uh, in my demo matrix in the studio. And we kind of agreed that the best way to, to go forward is uh, for me to actually do some testing. Um, being really open and honest, I've been very sceptical about this shaft. Uh, there's not really that much information in terms of what's gone into the manufacture of the shaft, as they say that it's um, Korean hidden technology. So they've not even got a patent on this shaft because they don't want to divulge um, any of the uh, the materials or anything they've done to make this shaft so special. So um, I haven't really got a lot of information to kind of share on it, really. Um, all I know is uh, from the testing the shafts are quite light. Um, I actually went for the uh, the double extra stiff version, uh, which matched my swing speed. Uh, I kind of get my swing speed up over 110 mile an hour when I'm actually playing and swinging half decent. Um, so I went for that option. I always play my shafts a little shorter than standard. So um, we built it. Uh, I think it was half an inch shorter than standard, but we cut it half an inch shorter and then put the grip on. So it was a tiny, tiny bit longer than my my current driver because my current driver plays uh, end of grip uh, half inch shorter. And that is a topic which <laughs> is very difficult to kind of uh, to describe and go into via audio because you can almost need to... Uh, for me to show you that, um, so that might be a, a bit of content that I'll that I'll use for uh, perhaps a video in the future. But um, yeah, the testing was was quite interesting. Uh, like I said, I didn't really know much about it, which I thought was quite a good way in terms of going into the shaft testing. Uh, I'm actually going to do some uh, some more testing on the shaft tomorrow in the studio just to get some data to back up what I think is actually happening. So the interesting thing, when I first put this shaft uh, into my head, I'm using a, a TSI 3 10 degree, which is set uh, on the set in C1, which is three quarters of a degree uh de-lofted uh, and the flattest possible setting. I don't like hitting it left. So... That's the way my drivers are typically set up, is open and flat. Um, And I was really shocked when I first put the shaft in because you kind of put it in your hand and give it a bit of a wobble. And this thing is 
the wobbliest, whippiest shaft I have ever felt in my hands um, by a country mile, uh, in a driver anyway. And that obviously is relative um, because I'm sure if I picked up a shaft, which is a lady shaft, um, and put my head, uh, my you know TSI 3 head on it, I'm sure it would also feel very whippy, but that that's kind of how um, how it felt. It felt like a senior shaft or a ladies flex shaft, um, and my my first instinct was, oh my god, this is going to be absolutely horrific. Because personally, I always like using stuff which is quite heavy and quite stiff. So this this profile certainly doesn't um, on paper. It wouldn't be something that I would go to. Um, so I kind of just took it as it is. Um, and I started hitting it, and uh, it felt very, very different from how it felt in my hands. And like I said, it felt really soft, really whippy. Uh, it felt like it had a bloody rattlesnake in my hands um, before I started swinging it. And it, it's the most peculiar thing um, that I've ever experienced because typically, when you know, when I've picked up, I'm very sensitive to kind of what I've got in my hands even down to the kind of the grip thickness, how how stretched the grips are, the length of the club, the weight of the club. I'm very, very sensitive um, to, to the way in which a club is built. And, you know, it felt awful in my hands. And then when I started swinging it, it felt completely different. Uh, and it didn't feel very, very soft. It didn't feel like the club was bending loads during the swing. Um and e- even that kind of took a little bit again used to because when I hit when when I actually go through my routine and I hit a shot, uh, I have a couple of waggles and you know those waggles give you a bit of feedback. And the feedback was this thing is very soft and has almost got a mind of its own. And then when you start swinging it, it it actually feels a lot more stable than I was expecting. Um, so that was very very peculiar. And uh, the first time I took it out, I, w- I was pleasantly surprised with it. Uh, it felt very, very stable um, when I was swinging it, even though it didn't before I started swinging it, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, I hit some very, very straight shots with it, but I got a couple of really wild ones, uh, which, you know, I'm not playing a huge amount at the moment. And um, to say that, you know, I'm a consistent ball striker is probably fairly accurate, Um but my ball flight at the moment is not that consistent. Um, so kind of my dispersion is probably a little wider than than what it normally would be. Um, but when I hit one offline with this particular shaft, it was crazy offline. And I don't really know at the moment whether that's the shaft or whether it's me, but that's just what I experienced. And then I played around on uh, Saturday morning and I put my old shaft back in, which is a Tensei Orange. Uh, it's a 60 gram uh, TX Flex. And um, that felt a lot more familiar. Uh, it felt better. Uh, and I guess, you know, I didn't drive the ball fantastically well, but kind of what I expected to happen kind of happened based on the swings that I was putting in. So if I put a bad swing on it, the ball was going exactly where I was expecting. And when I put a good swing on it, the ball was also going where I was expecting. Whereas with the autoflex shaft, when I put a decent swing on it, the ball was the ball flight was good. Um, it looked to be a little spinny, if anything. Um, when I put a not-so-good swing on it, the ball still went quite straight, which I liked initially. And then when I didn't feel like I swung it very well at all, it was way further right, especially, than uh, than I was expecting. So this is why I want to go in the studio tomorrow and do a good hour's worth of testing and, and just put it through its paces even more. Uh, I, I want to see whether it's the shaft, whether it's me. I want to see what kind of club data that I'm delivering when I do hit some of these shots and just really try and establish whether you know they really are horrific swings <laughs> or whether they're... Um, you know, half decent swings and I just don't know where the hell the club is. So initial testing is kind of, um, I would say, inconclusive at the moment. Uh, I've not really decided whether it's good or not. I mean, it's bloody expensive, this shaft. It retails at like 700 quid, uh, maybe a touch more by the time you put a sleeve and a grip on it. Um, and I was comparing it also against a very, very, very good shaft as well. So that Tensei 1K Orange um, is... 
you know, also, you know, it retails around three, four hundred quid, somewhere in that region. Um, so, it, you know, they're, they're both premium high end shafts. Uh, and I guess if I was if I was to answer my own question is what is the best of the moment? The only way I could answer it is if I was to pick a club to go out and play at the moment, it would be my gamer with the, the Tensei Orange in it, not the Autoflex. But maybe I need to do a little bit of testing because you, you do you do need to make sure the swing weight is uh, is correct uh, with the Autoflex shaft, which it is. Uh, I did check that before I tested it. Um, it, it was on D2, uh, which was fine, uh, according to the recommended, uh, the recommended swing weights. Um, but I maybe need to just change the, the loft of the driver a touch. So perhaps I'll do that tomorrow and see how, how that fares. But uh, initial testing was okay. Uh, I'm not sure I'd be personally running to the, uh, the shop to buy this shaft. Um, but I could see how it could be quite useful for certain players. Uh, you know, if my initial testing is kind of correct and it spins a little bit, and it feels a lot firmer when you swing it compared to how it feels in the hands. Um, there, there's definitely a, a player out there that would benefit from that kind of profile uh, without question. So I, I, I can kind of see it being very useful and usable from a fitting standpoint. I'm not sure it, it it's the shaft for me <laughs> yet, but I'm going to get some data and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that data next week uh, in the podcast. And I'm actually going to do a little YouTube video on it as well. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for that one. But I thought that would be quite interesting to share with everyone. Uh, and Because I, I know there's a lot of chit-chat about the Autoflex shafts and whether they're a load of rubbish or whether they actually work. Uh, there's some good YouTube videos um, uh, which have been done already by a, a couple of um, you know good content creators. Um but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw my two penneth in uh, after some more testing this week, and uh, like I say, keep your eyes peeled for that one. Um, there's a couple of new products which are coming out, which which I'm quite excited about. Uh, number one, it's the uh, the TSR driver. I'm sure everybody's seen uh, you know Titleist talking about some of the pros putting it in, um, you know, and winning winning some tournaments as well, which has been great. Personally. You know, when when new products are launched, I try not to get too excited uh, about the products myself. It's very easy to get drawn into the marketing and this goes further, this goes faster. This is um, the best thing since uh, the last time we said it was the best thing. Um, So I try not to get too drawn into all of this and I really look forward to testing this TSR driver. I was actually supposed to test it last week, but I couldn't make it, unfortunately. Um... So I want to say thank you to Titleist for, for inviting me along and uh, apologies I couldn't make it. But uh, I'm going to test that driver again very soon. Uh, I will be getting one uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so I'm excited for that and I'm going to feed back on it. But just looping around on kind of the the reason why I don't get too excited is because I really like to just learn about what the ball does and you know what, what influence that club has on the golf ball. Um, with companies like Titleist, they don't really shout from the rooftops about how brilliant their driver is. And um, even though they're probably a company which could probably do it a little bit more than what they actually do, because <laughs> they, 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 their marketing seems to be a lot more subtle and, um, and almost spread out over a longer period of time. Um, they they almost seem quite conservative in the way in which they market their their products, which I kind of like in a way because they're not coming out and they're saying this driver definitely goes ten yards further or gets more ball speed or it does this or it does that. Um, so it's it's always nice to kind of test a product like that um, where you know it's it's almost kind of gone under the radar and and hopefully you know it uh, the product actually sells it for you and the quality of the product sells it for you unlike some other brands where they literally shout from the rooftops uh, about how amazing this is compared to the previous products um and it's quite easy to get sucked into it and excited by it, which is great for the consumer uh, and it's great for testing. Um, but just from my experience over the last three or four years uh, of testing a number of heads, I think the gains are very, very marginal. And 
I think often it comes down to the fact that, yes, there's new products about. If you've got a driver which is really, really well fitted and it's been brought out in the last three or four years, you've probably still got a good driver. That's what it comes down to. Um, so, you know, TSR driver, we probably all know what it's going to look like. It's going to look like a, a traditional tightless driver. I'm excited to see what the tweaks are. Um and you know, I look, I look forward to giving it a good, uh, a good run on the golf course. Uh, and I, I, like I say, I definitely will feedback uh, more about that product when I get it. And um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly excited for that. Um, there's also some new talks about uh, some of the ping products which are coming out. Um, there's been a few, uh, a few leaks online, uh, which. I haven't seen uh, myself yet, but uh, I'm just doing a quick Google search now, and um, you know, there's there's a couple of photos online which uh, which are, is quite interesting. Um, Ping, I think, do a fantastic job of creating really, really good, solid products, and as as much as I, I, I don't think I would put one of their drivers in my bag at the moment. Uh, I do really value the quality of their products. And, you know, if somebody comes into the studio and, uh, you know, they, they want to get a really solid driver, um, which is very good at a lot of different things. Uh, and what I mean by that is often in fitting, it, it, it's like a, like a give and take scenario. So if you get a driver which is really fast in ball speed, sometimes you might have to give up a little bit of... Um, spin or low spin to be more precise uh, to gain something which is really fast in ball speed as an example or if you get something which is really forgiving low spin is going to be quite difficult to get um, a fast ball speed might mean that you might struggle to get a really high launch as an example so th there's often this give and take scenario and, and I really like the way in which um, Ping build their products because they're never ever uh, the fastest compared to uh, other products which I've tested they're never uh, the lowest spinning. They're never the most forgiving, but they're very, very good at all of those things. And it's almost like they're they're almost like a seven or eight out of ten uh, on all of those different aspects. Um, so, so when people test a ping driver, I typically find it uh, quite easy to fit them into it from a data perspective. The, the one thing which I think holds their products back more than anything is the sound of it, and especially when you're fitting it in a studio and it almost amplifies the sound of a ping driver. Um, it doesn't sound the best, and I've had loads of situations where I've had half-decent numbers from a ping driver, and you know it's just been dismissed automatically just because of uh, the sound of it. So it'll be interesting to see if they change uh, any of the acoustics for next year uh, and change the way in which that ping driver sounds i'm not sure they will because i know they're quite keen on having quite a distinct sound it's the same with their putters um and the other product which has just launched is the high toe three uh, the tailor-made high toe three wedge um i think i've actually got some uh in the shop at the moment and uh, i'm looking forward to going in later and, and actually seeing some of these products um Again, <laughs> I, I'm not overly excited on this wedge. Uh, you know, it's it's probably going to be fairly decent for, for some players. Um, but what I often find with tailor-made wedges, they make really good wedges, they're good quality, they spin loads, they look decent. But just when it comes to fitting, I, I almost just feel like they, they lack options in terms of grinds and bounces. And I almost feel like for me to fit a tailor-made wedge and almost need to grind every single one of them uh <laughs> i don't want to sound that you know that to sound too negative because I, I do actually rate the quality of the product it's just the options that they've got which um you know compared to other brands like the sm9s that's why i, I do so well with the sm9s because they've just got so many options and i almost feel like the the vast majority of players 99 percent of the players that come in for a wedge fit and i could fit them into a Voki wedge unless they've got some sort of um you know dislike of that brand or whatever but um but yeah, I'm not overly excited by this MG3 or the, the high toe wedge, um, but I'm certainly looking forward to giving it a go uh, and I will give you my honest feedback on it. Uh, but but yeah, let's get into a couple of the listeners' questions. Um, I've got quite a few in here, so I'm going to whiz through these. 
that's probably not going to be too long a podcast today. But um, I've got a left. Uh, I've got a question. Sorry, from uh, Jay Lefty, who I'm assuming is a left-handed golfer, and he he's asked, "What hot melt gun do you recommend for somebody to add their uh, to their home workshop?" Good question, and I think this is quite a relevant question because. If you go into a, a DIY store, you will probably find uh, a lot of hot glue guns. And even if you go into kind of WH Smith or uh, Wilkinson or anywhere that's really got any sort of art and crafts, you'll find, uh, you know, a form of glue gun, which is not going to be that expensive, um, which you can squirt out hot glue uh, onto whatever products you want. I've actually got one here in front of me, um, which... God knows where it's come from, um, but it's got like a the the glue which kind of you point in the end. It almost looks like a pen or a um, you know a, a clear glue pencil which you stick in the end of it and it heats up and you know you can squirt the glue out of it. Now, personally, I would never ever use one of those on a golf club. The reason why I say that is is for a couple of reasons. Number one, the chances are is that if you put any form of glue inside the head of a driver and number one it doesn't stick to the inside of the driver if it doesn't heat up properly or it doesn't stick properly the head is literally going to sound awful and you're probably going to ruin the head um number two uh you know like i alluded to just now the type of glue that you need to use which goes on the inside of these drivers needs to get really, really hot and needs to remain very, very sticky after it dries. So if, if you think that you're, you're pouring almost like a, a hot glue onto the inside of a, of a, of a driver and that needs to stick um, pretty much for the rest of its lifespan to a certain spot on the inside of the head. Now, first and foremost, it's not easy to, to get the location right on some of these heads. And unless you know kind of what's inside the head, it can be very difficult to know kind of what angle to set the driver at to get the hot melt into a certain part of the head. So it's, it's actually quite an intricate thing. Um, so my my answer to this question really is that I wouldn't go messing around with hot melt. Um, it's very dangerous for one uh, because if you're using it properly, you know, the, the temperatures that we're talking about for these... Um, you know, for the glue that actually comes out of the guns is uh, is extremely hot and would give you serious, serious burns on your hand. Um, so I, w- I wouldn't go messing around with it. And I, I know one of my ex-colleagues has had an issue with his hands um, and a, an accident with hot melt. Um, he's fully recovered now, but I know he was uh, he was in a terrible mess for, you know, for six to ten weeks or whatever it was with... Um, extremely bad burns in his hand so I, I, I would kind of stray away from that um, or stay away from that if you can and just take it to a club fitter if, if there's a decent club fitter around you or a builder they've probably got a glue gun I know mine my hot melt gun costs about 700 quid uh, they're not cheap these things um, so I would just kind of save yourself the risk of injury I'd save yourself the risk of using the wrong glue um, I'd save yourself the risk of putting it into the wrong spot in the head and just take it to you know to a, a really good club builder and just get them to do it for you they're probably not going to charge you a huge amount for it it's a job that you know takes two minutes um, it, it's not an extremely long process it takes longer for the gun the gun and the the hot melt gun to actually heat up uh, than it does to actually do the job. So um, take take it to someone who knows what they're doing, and um, and just get them get them to do it for you. That's what I would recommend. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, question from uh, John One Rob: Is TSR better than TSI? We will find out very soon. Um, I always seem to think that because Titleist have got like a two year cycle on their products they almost feel like they've always got a better chance at improving their products rather than the stuff that comes out every year i fully understand why other golf companies bring stuff out every year because they're just trying to catch that consumer who's ready to buy a driver every year rather than somebody who may be just looking to buy a driver every two years uh, and perhaps miss that person in the middle but um 
I've got a sneaky feeling that it's going to be a little better. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> I can't really, you know, put any substance to my answer. But just from having the last couple of drivers, the TS driver, the TS TSI, I do feel like they've they've made you know subtle improvements in them, and I'd like to think that this TSR driver is going to be a little better as well. So um, I'll keep you posted on that one uh, with some good feedback as well. Um, Got another question from uh, a Paul K three on Instagram. What are the things to look for in a great fitter? What a great question! Uh, very very good question. So, from from a consumer's perspective, this is what I would advise you to look for. Uh, I would firstly be encouraged when you see that a fitter is charging you for the fitting. That's first and foremost, because if if they, they're they charging you for their time, they value their time um, a lot. And uh, the chances are that there's a reason why they're charging you for fit-ins. Um, if, if, any, if anywhere's not charging for fit-ins, I, I would personally expect that to be a little bit more of a sales process. Because as much as you know, you might see it as a free fit in. They've still got to make money uh, from putting somebody in front of you or spending time with you. And if that means that you know they've got to put golf clubs in your hand and sell you a golf club in order to uh, to get a return on that time investment, then um, I'm not saying that you're going to get a bad fit in from that experience. But the chances are that. You know the the integrity of the session uh, might not quite be um, what it could be if you go and see a really good fitter charges for the time. Then they're not really incentivized to to sell you anything um, because we've all got to put food on the table. That's why we you know we all go to work. But at the end of the day, if you're going for a fitting, you want really good, honest advice. And you know, I've I, I'd like to think that you know people who've paid me to come and see me that have probably saved them money by giving them really honest uh, feedback in terms of what they need. Um, so, as an example, you know, if they don't need a four or five iron or a six iron, I'll tell them not to order one. Or if they need three wedges instead of four, that's what I'll tell them. And if I think that their driver is performing as well as any of the other drivers that I've got there, I'll also tell them straight. So um, first and foremost, I would go to someone who's charged for the time, somebody who's got uh, a good background in club fitting. They don't necessarily have to have worked on tour or worked with really, really good players in order to be a really good club fitter. Um, I'd say that somebody who's really enthusiastic about, uh, about golf equipment and really understands it. They've got to understand the golf equipment and what it does, first and foremost. So the knowledge base from a fitter has got to be quite good. That, from a consumer's perspective, is probably going to be quite difficult for you to understand um, and, and try and gauge whether they know what they're talking about. But it might be worth kind of giving them a ring before they start uh, or before you have a fit in uh, and maybe just ask them a, a couple of questions. Just maybe do a little kind of two minute interview. They might not think that you're actually doing an interview, but but why not? <laughs> give them a give, give them a ring and, um, you know, ask the fitter maybe a couple of questions. What products they've got there, what launch monitor they use um, and even ask them what their experience is, how long have they been club fit in um, you know, and, and, and give them a bloody interview. <laughs> why why not? Um, I think other knowledge, which is absolutely crucial from club fitters, is uh, trackman data or really understanding any form of data. So if they're using a GC quad or a flight scope or a trackman, um, I, I would make try and make sure that they really understand the, 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 the numbers because if they don't understand the, the data then you know th- there's going to be some assumptions that they will have to make in order um, to, to give you a specification or a prescription of a golf club um, on the flip side to that uh, in terms of understanding ball data what I think is really crucial is that if you're a club fitter and you've got absolutely no idea about the golf swing and you've got no idea about uh, the data which creates a ball flight I personally think that it's very difficult to, um, to 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 fit somebody into a golf club, and not just fit someone into a golf club in the short term, 
because you can you can get somebody to to hit a golf club really well just by trial and error you know and just try this one try that one try this one try that one this one's the best it goes five yards further than yours all the best but if you go and see a really good club fitter who's got a good understanding of the golf swing good understanding of club delivery data knows the ball flight laws then the chances are that they're not just going to be looking at the ball data they're going to be looking at your delivery they're going to be assessing kind of what is causing some of these bad shots that you might be seeing with your driver and and even them asking you about what golf course you go and see, what you're working on, that's a really good way of understanding if, if somebody is uh, has got a good understanding of the golf swing. Um, and I think that can only, only help. I wouldn't expect a club fitter to give you advice on your golf swing because that's not what you're there for. Uh, you're there for a club fitting. But certainly from a club fitting perspective, if you're not uh, digesting some of that data and you're looking at a golf swing, it can be very difficult to uh, really establish, you know, what that player needs to do in order to get better. Because it doesn't matter whether somebody's, whether as a consumer or from a consumer standpoint, if you're going for a golf lesson, if you're going to see a personal trainer um, and, you know, you're trying to get stronger for golf, if you're going for a, a golf lesson or a club fit in, if you're going to a psychologist uh, and working on the psychology side of things for golf, you want to get better at golf. So, you know, if you're going to a club fitter and he's not really assessing uh, your golf swing and your club delivery, then, you know, they're really, really missing a trick there and they, they might not be able to help your golf as much as you think they might not be able to help your golf. So I think that's quite crucial. Um, and like I say, just going through a trial and trial and error process is fine to try and get somebody you know, the, the best golf club out of a bunch, but certainly trying to fit somebody long-term and, and, and just giving a, a prescription like, you know, this golf club is going to be really good um, if over the next 12 months that your delivery changes based on what your golf coach is saying, you might need to do this to the golf club or you might need to adjust this or you might need to look at this from a fitting perspective when you get to this point. So it's almost creating a plan really which coexists alongside what uh, a golf coach might be saying to you or even something like you know if somebody doesn't have golf lessons you know just being really honest with someone and just saying look you know a, a golf club is going to help but it's only going to help by this much you know your club path is you know 10 degrees to the left and your club face is six degrees open I'm not going to be able to fix that with a golf club we're going to be able to help you maybe somewhat of the way um, and reduce this flaw that you're seeing with the ball flight but if you really want to get it fixed then you need to go and see a golf coach or go and have a golf lesson and I think that's completely fine for you to say you know in a fitting because you know it's advice on how that player is going to get better so there's a couple of a couple of areas there which I guess you can look at uh, you know to try and establish whether somebody is a good club fitter or not um, and like I say don't be afraid to give the club fitter a ring um, ask them what what golf equipment they've got to test what they use from um, you know a monitor's perspective, whether it's a TrackMon or a GC Quad. I personally think that those two are probably the only ones that you should be using in a club fitting if you want to do a really good club fitting. Um, because from my experience, those are the only two which give you really good club data. Uh, the ball data is good on both of them uh, and the ball data is generally okay on a lot of the cheaper launch monitors as well. But I've from my experience, I found that the club data can be um, very inconsistent. Um, so I hope that helps. Uh, let me know if you've got any more questions on that or uh, there's any follow-ups. Um, I've got another question from uh, the same gentleman here. What's the best way to fit a beginner golfer who's never had lessons? That is a really, really good question. Um, I would say... And I'm just rattling these off the top of my head, by the way. I've not really looked too much into into these. Um, I would say the best way to fit a beginner is just make sure that, first and foremost, what you're actually dealing with there. A beginner golf, golfer is almost like a junior who is going to be evolving physically, whereas that beginner golfer is going to be evolving technically um, quite a lot over a short period of time. So that's the first thing that you've really got to consider and you've got to let that the, the, the client know that you know they're probably going to change quite a lot 
you might get somebody who will start off, let's just say, a 28 handicap, and they might be a 28 handicap for 10 years. You might get somebody who goes from 28 to scratch within a matter of two years, and you know that's not unheard of. Um, you know, in terms of the potential progress that players can have, uh, you get some very, very talented uh, golfers out there who've been, you know, sports sports people in the past, and they've done other other sports, hockey, cricket, um, you know, anything which involves you know a, a ball or any form of hand eye coordination. It can be quite remarkable the the amount of progress that somebody can make. So, I think that just really understanding that and making sure that the customer understands that is really important. Um, but the way I would look at this more than anything is just making sure that the golf clubs are the right length, so they can actually develop um, good technique. They can stand the golf ball correctly. Um, establish whether they're going to have lessons, whether they've had any lessons. Um, and and just making sure that you know you, you you do a good fit and help them in the short term, and if possible, that and it's always the most difficult thing is to look into the future and try and establish where somebody's going to be in six, twelve, you know, twenty four months or whatever it is. But just trying to you know g- give them a set of golf clubs which is not just going to last six months. Um, again, it's it's very difficult to to do um, the, the actual length, the lie, the loft. Um, you know, the head type is not going to be that difficult, but just trying to bring, build any sort of longevity into, you know, that fitting is, is going to be very, very tough. So you've got to be quite sensible. The player has also got to be quite sensible in their expectations as well. Uh, the chances are that a beginner golfer is going to need a lot to help uh, with forgiveness. So you're probably going to be looking at, you know, something or a head design which uh, is fairly forgiving. I would expect their club speed to go up quite a lot. So even even looking at things like, you know, the settings on a driver, if their club speed isn't going to go up a lot, it means their spin is probably going to go up quite a lot as well. So even using the sleeve on a driver to make sure there's more towards the maximum loft setting so that as swing speed uh, changes and improves potentially, that you can actually bring the loft down on a driver, which is a really great way of building longevity into a golf club and you using the settings to your advantage. Um, from an iron perspective, I would probably not go, uh, you know, too many irons to start off with. Uh, you know, looking at perhaps six to pitching wedge, five to pitching wedge, stick a couple of hybrids in there, Um and probably not too many wedges either, <laughs> you know, not going kind of, you know, pitching wedge, gap wedge, sand wedge, lob wedge. A, a lot of players are not going to have that consistency where they're going to need, you know, that that specific gap in on the bottom end. Um, so even, you know, fitting them into a nine or ten club set for the time being, which actually gives them a little bit of room to grow the set quite naturally over the course of 12 months is a really good way of looking at it. You know, so rather than buying 14 clubs and then needing to replace those clubs when they're ready is actually just adding clubs in when they're ready. So maybe adding a really high lofted lob wedge in after six or 12 months or adding, you know, perhaps a longer iron in, whether it's a four iron or a two iron or, you know, hybrid, maybe a five wood, just allowing, you know, some some gaps there to to really evolve into in the future. So that that's kind of the way I would look at it. Um, and I hope that helps. Uh, another question, Theo Baker, how long do grooves last on irons and wedges? Um, very hard to tell. Uh, it very much depends on the amount of wear and use. Well, the wear is is obvious, but um, the amount of use that player um, kind of applies to the golf club. And the one thing which I found as well, which is um, probably the more important thing, is where they tend to practice and play. So if you... If you grab somebody who plays on a link surface, you will probably see a lot more wear and tear on their wedges and irons than you would do of somebody who plays on a parkland course, as an example, or practices on a parkland course. Because, you know, when you start getting sand in between the ball and the club, that is slowly going to chip and grind away at those those the faces and the grooves a lot more than if you've got something a lot softer and less abrasive in between the ball and the face, something like, you know, grass or dirt um, or mud or whatever it is. So um, keep an eye on them. You know, I would expect a set of wedges for somebody who's playing quite regularly to last at least 12 months. Um, 
for somebody who's playing really regularly and they're relying on the spin, the one thing that I would try and do if I was you is just try and gauge kind of, you know, the spin numbers. So as an example, you know, if your baseline shot is going to be, um, or your baseline 50-yard shot, you know, is going to launch at uh, 25 degrees and spin 6,000 revolutions, use that as your baseline and just keep an eye on it and just do some regular testing. Um, you know, make, make sure that you're still getting the spin and the launch numbers are quite consistent. What I would expect to see is over time, as the groove start to wear, the launch will go up and the spin will come down. And the difference between, um, you know, a, a ball which is struck with no interference and a ball which is struck with interference. And what I mean by that, if there's any sort of moisture, grass, dirt or divot or anything which gets in between the golf club and golf ball, as the clubs wear more, the difference between those two shots are going to get significantly greater. Um, so even a worn wedge, which has got hardly any grooves and looks pretty battered in dry surfaces or dry conditions with very little interference, you're not really going to lose um, an alarming amount of spin. Um, and for some players who don't need spin, then that can be a good thing with fuller shots. However, you know, when you get to the shorter shots and, you know, your chip shots and your little kind of 20, 30 yard pitch shots, that's really where you're going to need that spin and see the benefit from extra spin. So maybe, maybe create a little shot, get some data on it uh, and just gauge it over, over a period Um because the, these these changes on your your wedge faces and the iron faces are going to be very very small uh, and incremental, so you probably won't notice them from one day to the next. But maybe just doing a test once a quarter and just seeing what kind of numbers you get in might be a good uh, might be good practice there. Uh, question from Bishop's Wood Driving Range, good friend of mine, Gareth Johnson. Of every tour pro you've worked with, who's been the most impressive ball striker? Right. I did see this question and I thought about this and I've got two players, one which is probably not going to be that surprising and the other one um, is probably going to be quite surprising for some. Um, so first and foremost, uh, in the Open Championship, I'm trying to think what year it was, is that the 2015, 2016 um Jason Day was world number one. I think it was 2016 in Troon. And I was lucky enough to do quite a bit of work with Jason the the year before in St. Andrews where he finished second. We went right through the bag and really assessed kind of all of the ball flights, got his numbers, made any adjustments we needed to um, to his wedges. And that, that was quite eye-opening really because his preparation for that event was uh, extremely thorough like I've not seen before. Whereas Caddy Colin, uh, you know, didn't just bring the yardages he used from the week before to that session. He also brought the yardages from the year before in 2014, um, which I think was in Hoylake. Uh, and he brought those yardages to the session and we just compared them. So really what he was trying to do there is just assess what effect the altitude and temperature was having on the distance of the golf ball and really just making sure that he's dialed in ready for that week. Um but the quality of the strikes and well, as you would expect from one of the world's best players and that was Jason Day in his prime uh, was very very impressive and probably the thing that impressed me the most is when he missed uh, missed a shot uh, the misses were so marginal like I, I know he hit a driver I'm pretty sure he was using an R15 in St Andrews and then using a M1 I think uh, in Troon but I remember him hitting some shots in St Andrews where he was hitting a couple of drives off the toe. And honestly, you just never would know that they were off the toe unless you had a, a trackman in front of you. Uh, and even at that time, they didn't have the feature on trackman where you could see the strike location. But I'm pretty good at working it out when you're looking at face to path and you're looking at the spin axis number and just making sure those two are matching up. Uh, there was a couple of shots where they weren't matching up. So as an example, if you've got an open face to path number and you're looking at the ball flight outside and the spin axis number is negative, so it contradicts what the face-to-path number is actually saying, then you can assume that that's going to be a toe strike. And these toe strikes were landing kind of, you know, five yards off target. Um, they were starting a little bit right uh, of, of his normal ball flight uh, and just curving back really nicely. And it was just a really good sign that, you know, his swing and 
you know, his ball striking was under full control and there, there was nothing really that you could almost say that could go wrong because when he was striking it well, he was going where he wanted to and when he wasn't striking it that well, it all matched up and he was also going fairly close to where he wanted to. So that was mega impressive. And in 2016, when he was world number one, that is by far the best display of ball striking I've ever seen. Um, I have actually got some of the Trackman data uh, somewhere on one of my laptops somewhere. So maybe I'll try and dig that out. But even the delivery, you know, the consistency of the delivery with the club path, the face angle, the attack angle, you're talking like over six or seven shots that he was hitting with each club. You know, they were within kind of like 0.2, 0.3 of a degree between each one. And it was just so consistent um, that you just could not see how he's going to go out and not play well. Um, and that obviously is reflected in his world ranking at the time. Um, but that by far is probably the best session that um, I've been involved in. And there's there's another session which really sticks in my mind. Um, and this is a session which I've done with a tailor-made contracted player who was on tour for a couple of years. Uh, we actually done this session in uh, Wentworth. And it was in the tailor-made performance lab uh, in the studio Wentworth and uh, the player was under contract at the time was a guy called Sam Hutsby. Now, if if anybody knows Sam, uh, Sam is an absolute uh, gem of a guy. Um, I really, really liked him. Uh, Fantastic talent and uh, an unbelievable ball striker. Sam's done really well over the years on tour. I don't think he's got a tour card at the moment, and um, I think he played in the Kazoo Welsh Open uh, last week or the week before. Um, But honestly, in terms of potential, um, how Sam has not won multiple times on tour uh, is, is, is almost beyond me because... This this is a session. I didn't do much work with Sam when we were actually on tour, just a little bit here and there. But just being in his presence for you know for that two or three hours or whatever it was, uh, it is by far the best fitting session or the best display of ball striking um, outside of that session with Jason Day that I've seen, um, and it's one that sticks in my mind. So. To give you an idea of why I say that, right, is if you see Sam hitting a golf ball, you know his quality straight away. There's just almost like a different sound in uh, when he hits the golf ball. Um, and his control of the ball is just incredible. But during the session, I was really trying to not necessarily test him, but test the equipment that we were kind of deciding on. And I was really challenging Sam to kind of, you know, to, to curve the golf ball, you know, start it at this target and curve it to the left, curve it to the right, hit a low one, hit a high one, you know, knock one down and just really try and replicate what he would do on the golf course during that session because it can sometimes be quite difficult, you know, when a, when a player's just standing there hitting standard shots and then they go out on the golf course and they're encountering wind off the left, wind off the right, where they've got to curve it a little bit. That's really where sometimes you'll see if the product that you're fitting is good or not. And honest to God, when I got to the end of that session, uh, I almost felt like that he just did not miss a shot over the course of two or three hours, however long we were there for. And I was so, so impressed. Um, and I hope Sam kind of hears that. And um, be, because... You know, w- without sounding kind of um, pretentious at all, like I was really lucky where I got to spend quite a lot of time with a lot of the best players in the world and, you know, see the best players hitting shots week in, week out. And, you know, Sam is without question uh, up there. Um, you know, that, that session will probably stick with me for, forever in terms of a, you know, a fitting session. And I was completely and utterly blown away by it um and i know sam is is getting back to good form now and i certainly wish him all the best and and um you know he deserves not just to be on tour but just to be winning on tour and um you know making a really really good living just based off how talented he is and um you know his his ability to to control a golf ball so um it's nice actually reflecting on that session and um and like I say, I hope Sam kicks on and um, you know gets back on tour and uh, and has a couple of wins. But on to the next question. Um, this is from Cam Jones. Uh, How important is having professional club fit-ins to improve your overall game? Good question, uh, Cam. And I would say that it is very important, um, and it's very important to understand 
how the equipment that you've got in your bag is influencing the ball flight and influencing you as well. So, I mean, even things like, you know, making sure the lie angles are correct. I see so many people where the lie angles are correct and they're influencing, it's influencing their setup quite dramatically, even, you know, in how high they're lifting the handle um, to try and make sure the club is somewhere near sitting flat on the floor. I see that huge amount, you know, where the lie angle might be too upright and they're lifting their hands up and putting their wrist into, you know, a position called uh, ulnar deviation, where almost like the, the, the wrist is pointing downwards, if you like. Um, so that that's really important. It's correct. It's important to have the right length golf clubs to make sure that your posture can be very good. Um, and then you know, just just thinking about the surfaces you're playing off, the conditions you're playing in, making sure that the spin numbers are really good, making sure that you're getting maximum control into the greens, making sure that you're using the re- the right golf ball is another good one as well. So you know, s- s- some players might. Um, come to me for a bag fitting or a bag assessment and I might say to them everything is really really good but look out for this 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 and this over the next 12 months some players will come in and have no idea what their equipment is doing and you can have a huge influence on it so I guess to to, to answer your question I, I think it's important to understand if your golf clubs are helping or hindering if they're helping you then you probably don't need to get fitted but it's really good to try and get a good understanding if they are helping or not. If your clubs are hindering you, then um, the the influence that a club fitter can have on your game is going to be way, way, way more than if you've got a set of golf clubs which are okay, or whether you know a set of golf clubs which you've actually kind of almost um, created a technique around, if you like. So you'd probably expect me to say that it's really important, but it does depend on the player and what clubs they've got in their bag and how they've actually ended up getting them in their bag. I've seen guys who, who rock up with clubs which are which look like a bag of spanners and actually perform quite well and they do really well with them. Um, and I've seen guys then who rock up with a set of clubs they've had six months and you know they're the worst set of clubs that I've ever seen in terms of the performance and how they fit. You know, It very much depends on how the players go about getting the clubs in the bag. So I think to summarise that, Cam, it is important. And what I would advise you to do is maybe go and get um, assessed by a really good club fitter and just get them to you know tell you if your clubs are any good or not. And... You know, don't feel pressured into buying clubs. It's more kind of, you know, almost creating a priority list in terms of perhaps what a fitter would would look for you to change and, you know, where you could potentially make the biggest improvements by changing certain parts of your bag. So as an example, you might go for a set an assessment and the driving might be really good, the irons might be good, and it might be a case of, you know, I, I would look at changing your wedges in the next you know, three to six months or the putter, the way in which the putter's performing is pretty bad. It's launching too high, spinning backwards, whatever it is. Um, but I, I would really encourage you to go and get a session with someone and um, just really try and establish if your clubs are helping. And I'm guessing that's why you've asked the question is because you're really not sure how important a club fitting can be. Um, but it can be really influential uh, if, you, if you get it right. That's the end of the questions there. Like I say, at the end of every podcast, if you've got a question that you want to ask, you can send me a direct message on Instagram. You can uh, go onto my Instagram and send me a WhatsApp, which is uh, more than acceptable. Um, I love to get questions off uh, listeners. Uh, I really appreciate your attention. I really appreciate you listening. And um, a big thanks to all of the, the listeners who have sent in questions because it allows me to develop, learn, um and uh, and also create some really good content for all the other listeners as well so thanks once again and um i'll be back at you next week with another podcast take it easy